1: CreeperCast, Episode 97, Four Weeks of Halloween, Part 3, Our Interview with Justin Beam.
0: Hey, this is Justin Beam, author of Halloween, The Complete Authorized History, also with Trankus Films and HalloweenMovies.com, and you are listening to The CreeperCast.
1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Creeper Cast. I'm Jason, and with me today is Mike. How you doing, Mike?:
2: I am superior today,
1: and we have a very special guest. He is making the absolute, as I'm calling it, absolute, complete, authorized history of Halloween. I want to uh, say hello to Justin Beam.
0: Hey, guys. Yeah, thanks again for having me on. It's going to be a great show.
1: Yeah. Uh, let everybody know real quick to get a hold of us. Give us a call at 503 454 to leave a message on our listener feedback hotline. You can also email us at creepercast at or email us at feedback at com. And Justin, I, I got to start off with the most obligatory answer that I'm sure you've been asked a thousand and one times Why would you come up with this book?
0: I've been writing for Fangoria for a number of years. And a few years ago, well, I've been a Halloween fan as long as as I can remember. And I started working on a piece several years ago on the Halloween 4 through 6 story arc. It's something that's been largely unexplored over time. And I knew that it was clearly ripe for You know, someone to dig in there and get some details and the the actual stories behind what happened. And when I was starting to do my research and connecting, reaching out to a lot of the people that were involved, it occurred to me after not too long that there's so much territory yet to be covered with this franchise. There's there's so many people who have never had their voices heard, and there are fans of every entry. There are people who consider Part 3 their favorite, Resurrection, Rob's second film. I mean, it really is something that, that appeal. every film appeals to someone. And over time, while there have been some great mini-documentaries, um, several feature-length documentaries, really um, the majority of it's focused on the first film. And while that's obviously a benchmark, it just does leave nine other pictures yet to be explored. And so... I stepped away from doing the feature for Fangoria and started looking into a book and expanding on it. And around that time, I came into contact with Malik Akkad at Trankus Films, the parent company for the Halloween franchise, and Malik and I started working on several projects together. One thing led to another, and one day uh, I presented him with a proposal on the book project, and here we are now. That's kind of where it all began.
1: I I, I love that you uh, mentioned uh, Halloween 4, 5, and 6 because uh, last week we talked about the story arc of 4 and 5, and this week we're going to be talking about, or next week should I say, we'll be talking about uh, 6, 7, and 8, or 6, H2O, and Resurrection. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's, it's interesting how Halloween 1 and 2 almost have very little to do with four, five, and six, are uh, including... And then you can throw H2O in with one and two because it's almost like two separate uh, uh, story arcs to Halloween. Right.
0: Yeah, and I, that's part of what's so fascinating. And with this series as a whole, the way that it works, when you zoom out, you look at it, there's kind of one and two, and there's three by itself, four through six, and then H2O and Resurrection, and then Rob's films. So it's not like it's one... Cons- Consistent thread that runs through anything—it's really broken up into these little segments, and especially when you have H2O stepping back into the picture and ignoring everything after two—I mean, it really is a very convoluted universe <laughs> that, that these films exist in here. But I think that you know four through six have a very distinct flavor. They were a product of their time, and there's a there is a feel. About those three films, especially well, obviously four and five being shot back to back in the same place. But it is interesting that uh, they picked up the ball again and did something a little different with it. You know, made it a little more relevant to the audience tastes at the time. Starting off with Michael putting his thumb through a forehead and things like that. You yes. know, uh, and then through all of the all of the craziness that resulted in part six. You know, I mean, it's a very interesting very adventurous arc in a subgenre that usually doesn't have a whole lot of adventure outside of just the type of kill that you see on screen.
1: Now, and I've been uh, through the documentaries and through my readings and stuff like that. uh, I know that there is a actual director's or producer's cut of six that most everybody hasn't seen, including me, as much as I've tried tracking it down. Uh, Have you had a chance to see that?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um you say you have not seen it? I
1: have not, and I have I've tried to track it down and uh people tell me that it's on eBay and uh every time I try to get it on eBay, I get outbid. So,
0: yeah, it Yeah, what happened was that um with 6 sometimes with film, you have to go back and you have to do some Edits. You have to shoot some additional footage and things like that. And so, what what this "quote unquote" producer's cut basically amounts to, is the version of the film before reshoots. And uh, so, it it was leaked, and it's been passed around in fan circles, like tape trading circles, for a long time. And you know, obviously predating the internet and everything being so this stuff is so prevalent now. But um, the it. it really took on a life of its own and is and as time and the uh, you know I guess the powers coming down to to try to squash its presence out there uh, have worked against it a little bit i think that its myth has grown huge mm-hmm. and so at this point every everyone knows of it even if they haven't seen it and it's an interesting take it's an interesting little diversion. I guess you'd say the story and it is different than what you saw in the theaters. The, the sequence of events is shuffled around quite a bit. And so it, is it a purer version of the film? I, I guess that's up to the person who's watching it to think about that. I know Dan Farrens, the writer of Halloween six is a big champion of the producer's cut. Although even he says that that still isn't what he wrote. So, um, It's it's a huge part of the Halloween lore, and in a way, as much as I want to have it released commercially, that is an effort that I'm trying to make. I think that I wonder if it might do a disservice to the legend a little bit if it was just out there, because like you're hunting for it, you know, it's like you're. Yeah,
1: (laughs) it it, it's the uh, it's the Sasquatch. It's the you know. Mm -hmm.
0: It's tough gr- territory to cover here just because, you know, we are an official entity that, that you're speaking with. And, right. Um, so I certainly can't advocate bootlegging and, <laughs> and things like that. But that being <clears throat> the case, we have to acknowledge the fact that it's out there and that a lot of people have seen it and are very well versed in it. And it's an interesting film.
2: So well, we were just was- discussing uh, recently uh, uh, me and our other co host, uh, Jeff. We were discussing uh, H- um, Halloween 2, uh, Rob Zombie's version, um, and I had read online, and when we were discussing the film a couple weeks ago, uh, I have a completely different ending on my DVD than what they have seen. And mm. it really, fr- and I, I did some research, and it turns out that through Amazon, you can actually buy three different versions of the movie. There's the, the theatrical, the... Uh, unrated uh cut and then the unrated director's cut um which all apparently have different endings and i ended up with the unrated director's cut and it really frustrates me when they um when they do that it's like just put out one dvd with all of the stuff on there and then i can make my own decision which one i like better
0: yeah well like with robs it's a little bit of a different situation because While it is similar to what happened with Halloween 6, for example, where there was outside influence on how things ended up, um, with Rob's diversion that you saw in theater, the theatrical, was not his ending, not his intended ending for the picture. And so that was a concession that was made. You you shoot something, you you film it several different ways, then you decide which way you want to go with it. That's not as much... Hey, someone's stepping in and saying change your ending. As much as it is, hey, we need to have coverage. We want to have options. And we're sitting in the editing room because putting this back together to, to do reshoots is incredibly expensive and cost prohibitive, and so on and so forth. So, um, so there there are there's the theatrical. Basically, there's two versions, truly, truthfully, of the film. There's the theatrical, and then there's the uncut version. You know, Rob's director's cut for it and that's what is the definitive version that's what's on Blu-ray and the theatrical is still available on DVD you can also get it at our website at halloweenmovies.com you can buy it on there Uh, it's not on Blu-ray as of now but yeah it was it certainly wasn't an effort to to like bilk the audience out of I know there's a there's a sort of common thread in some discussion about how version after version of a film is released and I mean it really was you know here are the two versions and uh, theatrical is what is a, is substantially less violent it's a little less adventurous I guess you'd say and that's what most of the rental chains used or housed on their shelves whereas his unrated cut is the one that he wanted to stand the test of time as his picture and so that's what's out on blu-ray and that's where it's probably going to lie so the theatrical probably will not be in print forever.
2: Hmm. But,
1: so uh, how did you go about from, you know, coming up with this idea of the book to actually being authorized? I mean, who, how did you get authorized? Who did you have to team up with
2: to be able like to? It sounds like a huge undertaking yes. to, to get everybody to sign off on this.
0: Oh, it's unreal. And it, it, it yeah. yeah the official came with, from the start actually. I mean, I wasn't really interested in doing anything unofficial. And so that one, once I was working with Malik at Trankus Films, I mean, he owns the Halloween brand and the characters and everything like that. It's all Compass International, Trankus International. And so once we came together on it and once he agreed to to move forward, then it was official. And from there I brought universal on board. I bring Miramax dimension. So like the whole team is there and there are other, there are, um, other, there's maybe one other book that I think is coming out next year. That's an unofficial take on it that I think is a little more of a collection of previously published articles and things. But yeah, this is, this is official because all the necessary controlling bodies are a part of the the process you know they're they're in support of the effort sharing materials and opening the vaults
1: and uh, as far as uh, getting the word out I, I've seen it I found out about you actually on Facebook before mm-hmm. anything else uh, has social network uh, been a big help uh, or have you been able to how have you been able to get this out to people
0: yeah it, it's a tricky thing because you don't want to give away too much too soon you want people to still have reason to buy the book and But you want to start building momentum and getting people excited and, you know, have it injected in the dialogue. And so social networking has been everything in this. I mean, like you look at the Halloween Movies Facebook page and we have almost 700,000 followers on there. That's a substantial audience and it's just growing every day. You know, there, was, there are moments where we go through periods of, you know, 2,000 new followers a day sometimes. It's insane. And – So I knew I wanted to tap into the audience and at least let them know that it was in queue. I remember talking with Friday the 13th, Crystal Lake Memories author, Peter Brackey, about all that he went through with his book, which took many years to write and went through various incarnations and things. And he stressed from the start, he's like, yes, you know, I explained what I was doing and we were just talking about uh, his travels with it all and social media was he was uh, probably the 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 reason why his book had the momentum that it did because he was just keeping people updated sprinkling things out there in terms of updates and I wanted to follow suit uh, just and it's such a we're in a time when social media is how we're communicating this is you know we're I mean as much as print matters I'm a tangible media guy I still write for magazines you know I'm an editor or contributing editor with Fangoria and senior writer at Famous Monsters and so I'm really into print but for this kind of thing when you're just trying to generate a dialogue and get people talking social media is amazing and Facebook is incredible Twitter is amazing and I use that there are times when I'll be up at night and I'll have finished my work for the day and I'll pop onto the Halloween movies site and say hey I'm live on Twitter you guys have any questions come on over let's talk and then I'll sit for an hour or two and just interact with people answer any questions they have and really make it more of a personal experience for them and give them access to it a little more, you know? It's there. Social media is there. Why not work with it? Yeah,
1: and uh, I just want to let people know that uh, your Facebook page is facebook.com slash halloween book.
0: Right, yeah, you can go there. And my personal one is facebook.com slash Justin Beam, and that links to, that. you know, that has all my updates for all the different projects that are going on.
1: Yeah, and your Twitter handle is at Halloween book right okay so uh if you guys want if you're not already a a member of either of them definitely go and check them out a lot of great updates you you update that thing constantly I see that in my feed all the time and I love it (laughs) I love seeing all of the uh the new stuff come down uh at just on a daily basis uh you know everything right from uh getting uh Andrew uh dive off to uh, you know, something about uh, narrating a uh, mini documentary. You can't kill the boogeyman.
0: Yeah, I try not to abuse the privilege with social media. <laughs> that's something I'm very aware of because we all have people who litter it every day with what they had for breakfast and so on and so forth. And more power to them if that's their piece. But for me, I'm just really I try to be conscious of what I'm putting up there and try not to hit more than once a day, and uh, usually not even that. And with a book. I didn't I don't want to spill the beans on every step of the process cuz it's a it's not that exciting. <laughs> and B, I like there to be, you know, surprises down the road. And I think that there are ways to package news to get people more excited about it than just a daily, well now this person's interviewed, now this person's interviewed. And so w- what I decided to do with the Facebook page for the book is to announce the directors as they all came on board. And that way, people know that's sort of the foundation for the whole thing, right? That's yeah. the that's the core thread is the director's voice in my mind, and so I did all that. And now I'm as I'm putting the rest of the pieces together, there'll be more updates over time. But it, it's really going to be a little more liberal in terms of how frequent they are. And so, in in lieu of that, so people will still have a reason to check in at the page, I've been including some of the updates about all the other Halloween stuff that's going on and, like, my other projects and things. So, like, when the Blu-rays were coming out, I used, I put some stuff on there about that. And now the the re-release that I got going nationwide and in the U.K. now, I'm updating with that. So I try to keep it fresh and keep things happening without too much.
1: Right. Uh, yeah, and it looks like uh, you've got quite a few people going to these uh, re-releases. I mean, it looks like it's, at least from what I can see on your Facebook page, it's bit been fairly or very successful so far and it looks like you have one coming up on the 30th
0: yeah well this re-release thing has been amazing like the story behind that is after this after rob's second film came out uh, miramax was really excited and dimension rather really excited about another film in the series and so they announced halloween 3d and they even went so far as to put a date on the calendar for it which was this october well this fall into October. And when that all didn't come together as planned, uh, which it is still, you know, we're, it's still in the works for next year is what, where the aim is currently. Then I, I, you know, I thought, well, the, the next year is the 35th anniversary. And this year we kind of owe the fans something. Cause we've already said, uh, we're going to have a film and there isn't one now couple all of that with a lot of discussion since 2009, about or 2007, about a, a sort of a desire for a return to Carpenter's original approach with the series, and so I thought, why not just put the original back out there? And I started shopping the idea around to different theater chains, and I didn't find a tremendous amount of support for it until we bumped into Screen Vision, who's our distributor on this, and they made an aggressive estimate for number of theaters that would participate at 300 and we're well over 600 at this point and we just added 80 more theaters in the uk which puts us in almost 100 theaters in the uk right now which i mean it's it's just mind boggling how it just continued to grow and gain momentum it's it's very humbling
1: uh yeah for something that's you know close to being uh 30 years old yeah 30
0: 35 years
1: 35 next year. years yeah yeah, I knew and, my math was wrong.
0: <laughs> and and, it, and it's it's an untried approach in many ways to a, to distribution. It's sort of testing a new model because it doesn't involve any studios. It doesn't involve million-dollar television campaigns. This is really dependent on the fans. It's dependent on the word of mouth and the grassroots movement. And so as theater chains were hearing about it, they contacted the distributor to pick it up. Then we added more. That's how it continued to grow and that's how we grew. Uh, that, that's how you know. Now we're now looking at well over twice as many theaters as anticipated. And we never dreamed of going overseas with it, but it just started happening. And there it went. And the documentary that you mentioned is, with uh, Screen Vision was interested in some new content for this, and they gave us a time frame. You know, they said, you know, you have ten minutes. What would you like to do with it? And so I came up with the idea of doing something on the legacy of the series. And because there's been so much written about it in the past, especially about the first film, decided not to just focus on the production of the movie and look at Michael Myers and the cultural presence of the boogeyman around the world and how that translates into that character of Michael here in the States and what that means and how he's evolved uh, since, you know, between the first film in and 78 and then Rob's second film, for example.
1: yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's funny that we talk about this thirty years later and stuff, but really, Halloween and uh, I, I'm going to go back to the source to John Carpenter's vision of it. Uh, has been so impactful to people of uh, my generation, your generation, when it comes to horror films. I've told the story on this podcast quite a few times of the fact that you know I got into horror films because my parents, when they first came home with a VCR. In 1980, whatever it was, early 80s, -hmm, mm -hmm. they came home with a VHS of Halloween, and that was the only thing they had. And we, you know, we had didn't even have cable at the time. So when I was young, I was maybe five years old, and I was watching Halloween, the original, over and over to the point that I, you know, warped the tape and wore it out. Wow! And so, I mean, the the fact that Michael Myers, more so than I think any other horror icon. has had such an impact on people of our generation.
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing that he has, in a a way he's been more consistent, despite all of the, like we were talking about earlier, all the twists and turns that the series has taken, the character of Michael has been remarkably consistent. And one of the things that hasn't happened with this character is that he hasn't been made the butt of a joke. I'd say that Resurrection is as close as you've come to treating the character with any kind of humor, and as a result of that, he's, he's remained sort of preserved in his little jar. He's this, in, in many ways. While there's different approaches to playing him, directors have different approaches to how he should be represented on screen, really the character at his core is, is essentially the same now as it was back in the day. but they, you know the, the world around him and how he interacts with his environment's a little bit different. But yeah, I, I saw Halloween, two. Rosenthal's Halloween 2 is the first one that I ever saw on television on Halloween night when I was in fifth grade and uh, that forever changed I guess my outlook on things and it absolutely terrified me and <laughs> uh, and then from there I went and I actually my buddy's brother had the score from the original and the novelization and so I actually I, that's before I even saw the film I was listening to the music and reading or you know, leafing through this book and daring myself to read another chapter because it was so horribly terrifying for me. And over time, it's, it's one of those things where I guess you embrace the things that scare you. And yeah. That... Uh,
1: well, you know, you think back, uh, I, I talk about, you know, like I mentioned, watching that, Halloween is is a film, and especially Michael Myers himself, uh, I should say The Shape, actually, is really it's something that personally never he never scared me he he was al- he's almost like a a hero in some in some ways you know i mean obviously he's a villain but it's it's almost like he's such so iconic he's a hero you know as a little kid i would get terrified watching child's play but i could watch michael slash and dice people over and stick thumbs in people's foreheads and stuff over and over again and never be scared it's it's amazing how just uh his persona has such different influences on different people.
0: Why, why do you or think that is?
1: You know, I, I've often wondered that, and uh, I have no clue. I I honestly have no clue that uh, you know. I, I often tell people maybe I'm just warped, and uh, you know, I can <laughs> <laughs> I, I can uh, associate with a, uh, a serial killer that doesn't talk and wears a mask more so than other horror icons or other mm-hmm. you know but something about him i always liked and it, and i and it's almost a cheering when i watch him on the screen and i see him
2: mm. and for me you know um michael uh what you were saying as far as you know that <clears throat> he's been he himself has kind of stayed the same over the years and and not made the butt of a joke um for me um i was actually just thinking about that today because i was rewatching some of the movies um you know for our upcoming show and and i'm watching this and in the same time at the same time i'm kind of comparing you know he's just this goal oriented you know almost like a force of nature or a or a shark you know there's just one thing that he's after and they they kind of they, they use that in each movie Whereas, you know, you, you get something like, um, uh, Jason Voorhees, you know, uh, to keep that franchise going, we, we took him to New York and put him on a yacht. We put him in outer space and made him a cyborg. Um, uh, Freddy Krueger just got sillier. Um, yeah. Uh, um, Chucky, same thing. Now we've got the bride of Chucky, the seed of Chucky. And whereas Michael has pretty much stayed the same over the years. And I've been watching these movies for, you know, 30 plus years and, and, I enjoy watching them. Some of them, you know, I don't like it nearly as much as others. And, but just, there was a scene today I was watching part, uh, six, I think it was. And, you know, they, it, I don't know if they did this intentionally. I'm sure they do. Um, but we it was kind of an iconic image in the first movie where, when he kills the boyfriend, uh, stabs him up against the wall and he tilts his head, just kind of like a quizzical, um, mm. um,
1: I I call that, I call that look at my artwork. um,
2: But I see that, and I just saw that in like the last two films that I, you know, I think it's both in five and six. Um, And I just, uh, I don't know if, I never felt like it was like, oh, they were ripping it off or reusing the same image um, for, in a bad way. I always felt like it was like, this is, this is what Michael is. And he's, I don't know, you know, studying art might be a, a one way of looking at it more, I always kind of thought of it more as, uh, a like a child looking at, like, did I do that?
0: Mm, yeah, and that was instruction to Nick Castle in the original for him to give that little tilt to his head. And it's interesting how that's one of the things that people have really picked up on because it isn't easy to emote when you have no eyes and you have no facial expressions and. Um, each one of these guys has found something different in that character of Michael, but that is one of the consistent things. You know, the, the weaponry, the knife, and the mask, and then more than anything else, that head tilt are kind of the signatures of Michael.
1: And also, the uh, you know, the and this has been dissected to the nth degree, so we don't really have to talk much on it, but the fact that in any of the films he will not attack if he doesn't have his mask on
0: yeah that's true Yeah, or at least
1: his face you, wrapped up because uh if you count sure. the beginning of uh four when four. his face is wrapped up
0: yeah that's what i was thinking about that uh yeah but you're right and and that's something that rob picked up on and made a key element rob and tyler both tyler is as, as michael in his two films where that mask was the gateway for him like that's where he felt most comfortable was behind there and um, even when he's in the field in the second picture and those guys are attacking him, he needs to have that moment where he slips the mask on and then he launches into his, you know, his lashing out at them. Right. So it's a very, very interesting point. And he's been unmasked a few, you know, numerous times throughout the series, but, uh, and he always looks a little different, but it isn't like Jason where there's any effort to have a consistency in his wounds or anything like that on his face. It's really interesting.
1: Well and uh you know uh, unlike Jason because he Michael has never actually died uh he you don't have to try you know uh showing the face as being this decayed deformed whatever anything you know it's just whoever the person behind the mask is for that particular uh, uh movie you know Yeah
0: yeah and and he's never really shot in the face except for part 2 I mean that is one thing that if you were to look at uh I mean if you wanted to be screen accurate you would have a blind Michael Myers after part 2.
1: Yeah, we <laughs> and, talked about that.
0: At the very least he would have wounds in his face from bullet holes missing his eyes or something, but yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're very forgiving his fans of this series.
1: Oh, in- incredibly uh forgiving uh and we were just talking about how you there's a there's a lot of uh, uh suspension you have to give because if you really looked at the timeline for everything uh, we were just talking about you know how with H2O you have to basically forget the last three because if you went with the timeline of when, um, what's his name, uh, Lori's son, and Jamie, Lori's daughter, was born, Jamie would have been uh, not eight years old when her mom supposedly died, mm-hmm. and her son would have been six years old, so she would have known that she had a brother, and he would have known yeah. he had a sister
0: yeah it's but it, you know, <laughs> so you just kind but, of let that go you do and and I look at each film as as its own thing i, I truth be told, every one of these movies has its own feel yeah, and yeah. its own approach, and so I can enjoy any one of them just as a standalone film, and that's how I am with every series you know I don't need to look at it as a whole I don't need to have consistencies and things i mean I just I'm such a lover of cinema that I watch any movie and I'm in love with that movie. I don't need it to even think about it in reference to anything else. I'm just in that moment.
1: No. And that's really what, uh, you know, what it needs to be. The problem is, is when us, when we're dissecting the films for the podcast, it's hard to overlook that a little bit, but uh, Oh, sure. Sure.
0: Uh,
2: Speaking of dissecting this, um, and I don't know if this is something you could talk about or if anybody besides me, um, question this um or thought of it because i will watch all the way through you know through the trailers and the credits and everything at the end at the end of the original halloween um when i was again just re-watching it um, recently we have a listing for young michael myers then we have a listing for michael myers at age 23 and then we have a listing for the shape and i was like why do we have two different listings for for michael myers there not as a young i'm sorry oh no i I obviously didn't mean the you know the young michael and the old michael i was just curious why they had two separate listings um you know as the shape
0: if you well first of all in terms of who played michael myers in the film it, you, there isn't even credit for everyone who had that jumpsuit mask on. I mean, okay. you know, I, I have photos of Rick, or, or, of Tommy Lee Wallace dressed as Michael Myers on the set. I mean, just about everybody was helping out. I mean, and I'm exaggerating, but there were there were a lot of people who who were uh, you know sporting that and helping out. Just you know, we need we need to have a scene put together here. Here, throw this on. And the, what you're seeing in there is he's the shape it's kind of like what you were talking about a minute ago where when he has the mask on he's the shape and throughout the film he's written into the script as the shape and there's only really one two human moments in the film that's when he's a little when he's little and then when he's unmasked at the end of the film when it comes off briefly and that the actor who was playing him in that scene is Tony Moran so he's credited as Michael Myers and then you have uh, of course, will, as young Michael in the film, and so really what it 's exactly what you were saying where uh, they're the guys who were unmasked Michael, the human side of him, and Nick Castle was the shape stalking around in the bushes, around the front yard in the backyard, all of this that was that was him as the shape, doing what the shape does.
2: Okay. Well, I was just, I was wondering if I was the only one who ever caught that, but no, uh, no, no. Or the only one who, who bothered to let it bother him. (laughs) It's a good point. Yeah. All
1: right. Uh, so I want to get back onto your book. Uh, tell me, uh, what can you tell me about some of the, uh, interviews or some of the stuff that's in the book that people can look forward to?
0: I, speaking in general terms, uh, it, it really is the, it's a, I've described it as a love letter to the fans because above all else that's what it is and it when the reason i say that is because and i mentioned earlier every fan finds something different in the series because it has had so many different story story arcs and things you know there is something for everybody sprinkled throughout and so each film gets equal attention here you're not going to see 200 pages on part one and then resurrection neglected or something like that i mean everybody's going to be the same and as a result of that i want to i really want to touch on as many of the mysteries also not just the production information but a lot of the things people have been curious about for years because when you have a series like this that's run this long it's very much like star trek or star wars and how the fans pour over it online and these message boards and chat rooms and things i remember a time when the internet excuse me, was in its infancy when you would have warring Halloween fan sites, you know, well, ours is better. And then we're going to go over and flame these guys before flame was even a reference. And, <laughs> you know, and, uh, the, the discussion is just so rich and deep and can, and perpetual that it's the fans have generated sort of, uh, they've, they've pulled so many, so much out of each one of these films to explore they've uncovered a lot of mysteries over time and so uh, you know in addition to just the general mysteries that we see on screen and wonder why is why tell me about the man in black you know so what I really wanted to do and what one of my main focuses was for the book was to lift the veil on a lot of the things that people have been curious about for a long time but the people who had the information maybe weren't tracked down uh, weren't doing interviews at the time whatever but Everybody's coming around on this and everyone who's been participating has been so generous with their time, with their materials and their memories and sharing. And so you're going to learn about everything. You're going to learn about the origin of the man in black and the cut scenes from all the different films, about who exactly wore the mask, about the origin and the growth or the uh, rather development of the mask each time, the music for each film and why it changed. The I mean it's 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 taking a model like a car and taking all, taking it apart starting with the shell that we all see that we can all acknowledge is there and then getting under the hood and then taking the motor apart i mean it's just dissecting the entire beast and there's a lot there as i mentioned earlier outside of part 1 it's basically virgin territory and there's there's a lot of stories to be told
1: are there I any, cannot
0: uh, wait for this book to come out, <laughs> totally honest with you.
1: Are, are, um, there, are there any uh, stories or uh, anything that you've been told that uh, you can talk about right now?
0: The Man in Black is one of the great mysteries that everyone is curious about, and it's often discussed as introduced in Part 4. How did it tie into, or Part 5 rather, how, how did it tie into Part 4? Did it? Was there a, the idea that this would carry over into a Part 6 that would explain it all? And that's all addressed. What, what's amazing about something like that, like just talking about The Man in Black, for example, is that so many people have their own version of the story at this point. It can be one of the challenges of writing something like this is figuring out what was real and what is just a myth that's grown in the mind of the person that's telling the story. Or maybe they misinterpreted something, or maybe they their information was secondhand on set, given to them, overheard by a PA talking or something. I mean, there's all these different ways that information travels. So finding the, the, the truth behind it all, finding the consistencies, those are the diamonds in the rough where you, that you're looking for. So The Man in Black, you're going you're gonna to read about a bunch of different takes on how that came about, and then you're going to read the definitive story of exactly what happened, and it is different than anyone else said. So I hate to be so elusive, and I apologize for that.
1: <laughs> no, I, but... I I understand. You know, definitely, if you want to know this, you have to get the book. Yeah,
2: and when, it not even. When, when is the, the official release date for this again? We're it's we haven't announced
0: anything yet because we are we really want to give it the time that it demands. This is a huge undertaking, and our initial estimates were really aggressive in having it done this year. And, uh, as it, one of the great things about this great, and also, I guess you'd say simultaneously troubling from time to time, things about a project like this is as you go, you're turning over stones. And oftentimes when you t- overturn one, you find three more. And for example, someone gets on board and then all of a sudden they say, you know, I bumped into so-and-so at a coffee shop a few weeks ago. I haven't seen them since we shot X film And we were just rolling on all these stories. I know they would love to talk to you about this. And then that opens up a whole other can of worms, you see. So um, like Peter Brackey's book, you guys have both seen the Friday the 13th book. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, it's exhaustive. And it took him years and years to write that thing. And he started doing it without even having a publisher or any fans knowing what he was doing. And so um, we're obviously much more – my project here is a lot more visible than what he was at the outset, uh, but dealing with just as huge a series with this kind of undertaking. And so while we certainly had the best intentions of getting this done as quickly as possible, I just – at this point, there's so much there. There's so many people that are still coming on board with it all the time, and it, it's quite frankly, you know, as long as the publisher was, is willing to go for the ride, which they are so far, um, then I, I'm, I'm going to give this as much time as it takes to make it what it needs to be because this book is going to be written once. This isn't going to be the kind of thing that's poured over time and again probably, and so it needs to be done right and not – I mean the 35th anniversary is a goal obviously it's a bit of a marketing tool but it's really not much more than that and so I would rather deliver something that's quality and that the fans deserve than something that's just an easy tie in like an easy pop at the box you know at the uh, on, on Amazon or something like that cuz I think it's going it, to it'll be strong either way
2: I keep looking at uh, Amazon hoping that I see a release date. Like I said, I'm very excited about this. The
0: best way to keep up on all of it is just to follow the Facebook and Twitter, seriously, because the information is is firsthand from me. It's not filtered through anybody, and I'm I'm always going to be sharing anything that's pertinent. And if there's any key developments, I'm going to be celebrating it on there because the news cycle, by the time anything hits Amazon, it's weeks old. By the time anything hits the news cycle, it's usually at least a day or two old. So that's the great thing about social media, to touch on that again, is that when something cool does happen, it's on there instantly because I want the fans to celebrate in it as much as I am sitting here all giddy because whatever happened.
1: (laughs) Uh, Is there anything that you have uncovered that all of a sudden you went, wow, this completely changed what I thought before? That's
0: tough just because especially as someone who used to, especially used to really go through the message boards. This stuff has been so discussed for so long. Um, there are some, there are definitely revelations about origins and about, you know, what was happening behind the scenes, the influences on what happened with films, where I think a lot of fans, uh, especially people who might not be real familiar with the how the like like the film production side of things like the industry itself Mm -hmm. i think that that there it's easy to have misconceptions about why certain things ended up on film and you know why certain things happened and the stories behind those are always much more interesting than just the common thought of oh well someone was meddling in the business or this director didn't care about what they were shooting so they just Fought, you know, tried to lash out at the audience and critics with this picture, something <laughs> like that, you know. So he just th- there... gave
1: up, so he decided to uh, have Michael get beat up by a rapper,
0: yeah, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And, and you know, quite frankly, just in, in Resurrection, this is what the fourth time that film's come up already in our discussion. But it, it behind every one of these films, and one of the greatest treats in this book is that while fans. Have their have a very personal and emotional attachment to the series it's tenfold for the people making these things that no one walks into a film and wants to the, and, and and wants to sink it no one wants to destroy a project no one wants to make something terrible make a mockery of the characters on screen. Everybody walks in with a genuine interest in making something good and especially someone like Rick with Resurrection. I mean, Rick's no. This it wasn't his first rodeo. You know, he came. It back wasn't
1: even his first uh, Halloween,
0: and it, exactly. Um, yeah.
1: It, and I am going to uh, actually defend Resurrection to everyone uh, that doesn't like it because I read a lot of the boards and a lot of people talking about how much they didn't like it. And I will say, Resurrection, I think, was a perfect view of Michael Myers from the time that it was being made, which was the age of uh the internet pre social network but post uh uh post uh video chatting you know and that's what i loved about it was that uh you know it it's the it, this film was made as almost a uh what's the word i'm looking for a- as an answer to uh almost the opposite of uh, well, it's a, it's a voyeuristic film, but it's, uh, you know, almost the opposite of uh, uh, what the heck's the name of that uh, play that uh, where everybody thought was real, but wasn't um,
0: War of the world of the worlds. Yes.
1: Where everybody thought it was real, but it wa- wasn't. And in this one, what I love about it is we're so used to watching stuff on the Internet that we think isn't real. But in this case, it was. And I love that angle of it.
0: Yeah, I think it's a, see, I love when something new happens with a story. Like, you know, we've had 35 years with Michael Myers and Dr. Loomis and everything. And so I really appreciate when someone does something a little different. And with Resurrection, it was exploring the mythos in a little bit of a different way. And you, like you said, it was definitely a reflection of its time. At that time, there were all kinds of these web-focused, you know, things like Strangeland and uh, fear dot com and all That's the rest right, of these there films. was, yes, it was like a movement that was happening, and uh, Halloween has been kind of immune to that up until now. It usually isn't so squarely commercially um, influenced you know i like I mentioned earlier, part four comes out, and it was definitely in the eighties during the heyday of a more a little bloodier approach, and even then it's understated compared to a lot of what was coming out at the time. But uh, Resurrection, I I mean, it does have some solid moments that even the diehard critics acknowledge work really well. Like for me, and just touching on that film alone, I love that character at the beginning, the uh, the guy in the hospital who watches Michael, you know, the the guy who's out wandering. um, And forgive me because it's like it's late, but uh, the – I can't remember the character's name, but he's wearing the clown mask and he's heavier set. He's out wandering around the yard in the beginning and they take him back to his cell. And as Michael is making his escape, he walks by this guy's room, hands him a knife after he's killed Laurie. And as, as they show Michael making his way out of the hospital and sort of out into the world again – this guy is reciting the statistics about Michael like he's a serial killer. Like you know, it's like he's talking about Charles Manson or something. Michael Audrey Myers, born, you know, killed so many on this date. and it, it's it's a really neat scene and a neat character. I wish they would have done more with him. but just that alone is something a little different because it takes Michael, who was acknowledged as a threat in the other films. like in part two, you know, he's on the radio, people are talking about him having escaped and such. But uh, at this point, it's really looking at him as a cultural icon. Oh, yeah. And, that, and that's something that's not really acknowledged many other places, if any, throughout the series.
1: Uh, I, I would say it's acknowledged in four uh, when you have the scene where uh, they're out in, you know, they're trying to call Michael out and then a bunch of uh, people in his mask and wardrobe pop yeah, yeah yep. pop up. Yep. Uh, I think that's uh, really the only other place that. Uh, they make a reference to the fact that Michael has become a cultural icon.
0: Yeah, and he, and even there though, it's a very localized. Like you can see in, you know, I've I've been to like Plainfield, or uh, yeah, Plain, Plainfield, Wisconsin, where Ed Gein did his you know dirty business and whatever, and and there everyone is so skittish about it, but everyone's aware of it all the time. So it's a town that wears it on their sleeve, and Haddonfield would, if it was the not only the birthplace of the most prolific murderer in this universe,
2: mm-hmm. the,
0: the Halloween world, whatever we want, we want to consider it. Also where almost everything happened. I mean, it's going to be a town with, uh, it's, it's just going to wear this like a mask. It really would. And so that makes sense. But in resurrection, the way he's being talked about is even bigger. It's on a bigger scale than like local kids being punks and playing a prank. You know, he's it, it's, it's with a reverence that almost celebrates the, the horrible things he's done instead of just joking around with it, if that makes sense.
1: No, yeah, yeah, I, I definitely get that. Uh, so, yeah, um, with that, uh, t- t- are, are there any uh, behind-the-scenes things that, uh, you know, when you were watching or before you started this journey uh, into the book, that, you know, you, you had a preconceived notion of how something was done or why something and now... Uh, you you actually after talking to people see something different you know I mean of course with the first one I've I, it's almost become uh, uh, the the story to go to of you know all the characters you know dropping the leaves and then having to run behind and pick them up and stuff but uh, is there anything like that that you've discovered that made you kind of go well that that you know I I I love that story that this has to be in the book just because this is just you know how it's done
0: every film has something like that because no matter how big the budget was in the series, there were there've there have always been concessions that had to be made or like, you know, things that had to be creatively engineered on set. The Leaves and the Good One's a great example of of that. And, you know, and that brings to mind a story you asked me about something earlier, like are there any things that you've uncovered that really kind of blew my mind and not to sidetrack, but one of them that I actually shared on Facebook because I was so excited about it, which I'm probably not going to do again because I realized how valuable it was after I just blurted it out, is I was just chatting with Robert England one day, and it wasn't even about the book or anything like that. And and he came and he he brought it up. He's like, "Oh, you're doing the book right on Halloween?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And he goes, "You know, I was on set for that." And I was like, "What? Really?" And he proceeded to tell me the story about how he was a leaf wrangler on, on Halloween. He came down to set for a couple of days, and he had some friends who were working on it. You know, All these film students sort of share the same community, and, and, yeah, and he was down there. So he was one of the guys out there uh, shoving the leaves in the bags and you know, trying to catch them as they blew away in the fans and things. So it's a direct Nightmare on Elm Street to Halloween tie that has never been discussed before, that I go into in more depth in the book, of course but that was a real surprise for me and a conversation that was completely unrelated to the series. And there's been a number of things that have come up that way over time, right? I, I uncover something that – or I'm talking to someone and realize, holy cow, you have a direct tie to this. And it's like the Kevin Bacon game. Everyone's tied to Halloween somehow.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's awesome. I love I – I had – Obviously, I had no idea. If you had no idea uh, of Robert England, yeah, uh, you know, and that would have been seventy-eight. So that would have been what? Only a couple years before Friday's or uh, Nightmare on Elm Street.
0: Yeah, and he. So he was just a kid figuring out what he wanted to do in film at the time, and that's honestly the energy that carried Halloween to the plateau it arrived at was. That it was a group of people who were just passionate about creating something. There weren't, it wasn't a bunch of ego driven, jaded industry vets. It was a bunch of kids coming in with all the youthful enthusiasm and maybe the, you know, a a naive approach in some ways, but that's oftentimes where the greatest art is born. I really think so. You look at Chainsaw Massacre and Mm -hmm. a lot of these other films that these directors are always held up to as their benchmark. And it's usually something very early, if not their, their first pioneering projects. And because they're walking into it without rules in mind, they're just walking into it with creativity in mind. And that's always going to generate a, a, a purer product than your 10th film that's under the umbrella of $30 million as opposed to $10,000 or whatever your first effort was
1: now uh you you had to have talked to somebody about the William Shatner mask sure uh, uh it, it, i mean i everybody knows the story you know they were looking and they tried to do a couple different other masks on and you know clown they just clown, stuff. Yeah, yeah they just didn 't work and so then they found this william shatner uh Captain Kirk mask, and mm-hmm. they spray painted it and uh widened the eyes uh, Is there any more to that story you know that kind of makes the the mask because? The mask actually, you know, has taken on a life of its own outside of just being, you know, it looks like it's the same mask in number one and number two. I don't know if they actually change or not, or if, but it, to me— It's a different mask. It is yeah. a different—it looks exactly the same at the beginning of two, up until he gets shot in the
0: eyes, obviously. Oh, well, yeah, 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 yeah. But the mask that Warlock wears throughout the rest of the picture but, is, is definitely a different mask.
1: But then when you actually get to four, five, six, and above, the look of the mask itself changes.
0: Yeah, because at that point, you have to remember, too, that with the first one, again, this was engineered out of necessity. Right. There was no high art involved. I mean, he was written – if you were to read this John's script, it was written as an emotionless face. He was very influenced by a film called Eyes Without a Face, a French film, and it's about this girl who wears a mask that sort of covers all of her features – as a result of what lies underneath. And that was just one thing that he's mentioned in the past as an influence on him with that. and so, But it wasn't written as though it was, here's a, a modified William Shatner mask. But what happens is, the same thing that happened with Jason, with Leatherface, is that as you move away, and this has been an interesting thing for me working on the merchandising side of things and how companies approach a product that relates to Michael Myers, is that by the time you get to number four, you're not necessarily thinking about the origin of the mask that he's wearing. You're thinking about Michael Myers as a whole. So what are the things you remember? You remember white. You remember dark hair. You mm-hmm. remember featureless. And, and the so, jumpsuit. And, that's and it. the jumpsuit, yeah. And so when they were, it's, you can't ignore history at that point just like now we can't ignore the fact that Michael's tied to Lori, right? But as much as I would love people to be able to do that and walk in theaters this October or next week and just enjoy the film on its own terms and look at it as the shape you know without motivation because in the first film he had none. It's the same thing with the mask like you can't you can't not you can't unsee and unexperience the things that you've seen and experienced, and so they're walking into it with all this historical reference in mind when they were approaching those masks. And I think that Rob's films come closest to the Shatner look than anybody that came before, than like four through Resurrection. He was really trying to make an effort to make it look, I mean, obviously it had to be much bigger. It was based off of Tyler's face, so it fit him properly. Mm-hmm. But so they didn't run into the issues that you know were around in part two where the mask was so tight on Dick's face. Uh, so yeah, you know, I mean, it, it. Each film came with its own problems and set set of issues with the mask. In part five, he um, ended up Don ended up breaking his nose at one point, and so he had a piece over his nose under the mask. The mask had to be modified to accommodate that. So people say why the big nose and the mask that's such a weird creative decision well it wasn't a creative decision it, it was, was
1: a, a necessi- necessity exactly yeah and were. then uh 6 i think had a couple different masks didn't
0: it <laughs> most of them did yeah and, and you know h2o had the, the greatest number of them because there was there were issues with the development of the mask and which company was going to be doing it and you know who was actually going to be creating the product and So on and so forth. But Six... Yeah, Six had a a little bit different. Again, you're bringing George Wilbur back into the picture again. And so he looks a little different than he would have in Four. So you can't just put that mask back on him again. And they wanted to do something a little different with the look of Michael. And so... Yeah, each one, though, has... If you look throughout the films, even in Five, like the the flare on the neck of the mask, it kind of comes and goes throughout the film. And in Four... There's several different masks that you see throughout it as well. There are some that are a little blanker than others. In part five, there are some that have the mesh and some that don't. And, I mean, you know, so.
1: Well, and as the series went on, the mask kind of actually started taking on almost an emotional feel in and of itself. Where rather than being just blank, you could actually, you know, see... Uh when he was you know determined walking you the mask looks like it changed a little bit to show that determination on the on his face
0: yeah i don't i don 't think anyone made an effort to have the mask match his emotion in any scenes or anything i i've never heard that from anyone who was involved, but I will say that when you look at part one, it is featureless i mean largely featureless if there 's any features it 's in shadow it 's shadow play as opposed to art like painting whereas in part six. The mask is highlighted with blue lines all over it. If you were to hold one of the masks from Part Six in front of you, it, it's it's almost purple, hmm. purple. It's a, it's like a grayish uh, with with the the laugh lines on his my by his mouth on the cheeks. It's all blue highlights. It's really interesting to see in person, and um, actually as part of the documentary, that you'll see there are. It's I mean without giving anything away because we're like really being you know hush about what's in it but the there are some scenes where you see the actual mask sitting on a table and so you're you're going to get to see it on the big screen and you'll see what I'm talking about when you experience that how it's kind of this different color than you'd expect.
1: Hmm. So uh, maybe that's me projecting uh, what I think (laughs) the mask looks like uh, when I say it looks like he's determined or angry.
0: That's what makes it so work so well though because you can. That's what's great about masks in general, is that there's the mystery of what lies behind. But also, it's just like when you watch a ghost hunting show, and they're seeing shadows move, but they're in the darkness. You know, Your eyes start to play tricks on you, and you're applying what you normally need in that scenario. What do you need here? You want to see something happen, so your mind might help you see that. Same thing with emotion, when you don't trust things that you can't see emote. You don't trust a dog that just looks at you and glares as you walk by. You're automatically suspicious. Mm -hmm. And I I think that projection is pretty natural. And this mask is so perfect for that. That's what makes it so iconic. Because he isn't a killer like Jason that has a history of an arsenal of bizarre weapons that he's used on people and stuff. He really isn't. He's a very simple character. Well, he's basically,
1: yeah, he's basically got the knife, or uh, every so often he used a couple other weapons. Uh, Especially in five. Yeah, well, and in six, he killed Jamie with the, uh, I don't know, whatever that machine is.
0: Yeah, right, right.
1: But, uh, yeah, he just kind of sometimes uses what's around him. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, yeah, it's a knife. And uh, what what I think makes Jason or uh, Michael different from Jason or from... Uh, anyone else is even though you have you you learn about the thorn cult and all this stuff later on he's still at his core he is like mike said he he's a force of nature that is just determined that once he sets his eyes on you there is no getting away unlike jason that uh you know will go he's more of a you know uh he, he's got mental issues almost that you can play with with him with Michael. There there is no you can't talk him out. Well, Jamie could talk him out of it, but <laughs> you can't talk him you can't talk to him, you can't reason with him, you can't and you can't really get away from him because no matter how far or how long you try running, as we learned with Lori and eight, he will catch up with you.
0: Yeah, what's your theory on why he was after Jamie and why and do you think he was after her to kill her?
1: You uh I, I, I love asking
0: people about their theories on this stuff.
1: Well, based on Six, that, uh, you know, Jamie has the baby and he's after the baby, you know, originally you think that uh, he's after her to kill her to end his bloodline. And then when Six comes out, you see Jamie with the baby trying to get away. And I don't know, I could be wrong with this, but for some reason I always associated that it was Michael's baby, which makes a little incestuous thing go on there, but... And so uh, then he's after the baby. Well, I can't imagine that he's after the baby to end his bloodline. So I'm thinking that uh, there's uh, some sort of uh, puppet master that's behind him uh, trying to tell him to uh, kill Lori to end his bloodline there. And then when he finds out that Jamie is alive in the uh, ambulance, he goes after Jamie uh, to kill her, and it wasn't until midway through 5 that it changed, and they just, uh, he was then told. So I think that there actually is, uh, at least up until 6, some sort of a puppet master controlling him.
0: Mm, yeah, interesting. Yeah, where the motivation was such a mystery and not even really necessary to the story in Part 1, the motivation became the core of the series from Part 2 on. A family connection that John's honestly... Pretty flippantly threw into the story because he didn't have any other ideas. He says, "You know, he just wrote it with six pack after six pack underarm." Uh, ended up setting this thing on a course that it never really broke free from, and even in the remakes and uh, its sequel, that's still carried through. And I'm I'm intrigued by that. I, I do you do you like? fact that it was that it, it was introduced that michael was after laurie because as the sister connection do, do you like that that set the series where it, the way that it did
1: you know i i like the fact that it, it gives a through storyline that can move on and being mm-hmm. that i'm that type of person that i love storyline especially you know a I'm, I'm a trekkie that never watched uh star trek and mm. so i'm that type of person that likes following and makes up my own little mystery or my own little, you know, subtext to it. I like that. I don't think it was needed. I think, I think the fact that in one and two, it could have been, you know, he went after Lori because she was there. And when she got away at the end of one, he followed her to the hospital because he had to finish the job. Yeah. And I think that's all it really needed in my yeah, personal no, gotta opinion.
2: Regret- <clears throat> yeah. I got to agree with you. I mean, I, i i like it that it, like you were saying uh it carried through for the next few movies you know obviously disregarding three um that there was a family connection but um at the same token you know i was always confused i'm like uh is he going to especially when we get to jamie you know, are, is he going after Jamie to kill her? And if so, why? And obviously we, we get some of that, um, when we get to the cult of Thorn and, and what have you. Um, but there, there were still some discrepancies cause you know, there was the psychic connection in four and five, but then when we get to six, um, it seems like that connection is gone. If he's connected to Jamie, why isn't he connected to the baby? Um, and again, uh, how did they control him for five years? Where at the end of six, he, he, it's like he's off the chain and he kills everybody. Um, but I like that. There's that family connection. I was just always confused as to, you know, is it a, you know, I'm going to kill her because I love her. I'm going to kill her uh, or I'm going after her because I love her, which we kind of see in Rob's film. Um, he goes back for, and we discussed this when we were talking about the f- uh, films a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's clearly he's going back for his sister uh, because he loves her mm-hmm. uh, whereas in you know uh, the other movies you're just kind of left with why is he going after her again um, so it, it kind of, to me it kind of detracted but I still liked it
1: yeah I you know I I do think though that uh, from a uh, purely you know psychological standpoint I think that by putting it in there it actually makes Michael less scary because then all you really have to remember is that, well, I'm not related to you, and all, so all I really need to do is stay out of your way,
0: and you're but not coming a, after me. It's a confused motivation. Right. Because throughout the rest of it, then, why would he ever waste his time with half the people that he does? And so Yeah. I mean, especially when you get into Part 6 and— the family tree is growing, and there's all these other factors that are manipulating Michael and all this. I mean, it really it asks more questions than it answers, and unfortunately, fortunately and unfortunately, uh, it it was never that storyline was never really seen through to an end. There wasn't a follow-up to that that really broke it all down and cleared it up. Uh, you know, the history behind all of that. So, while that's awesome that fans will forever be discussing the, why Six was what it was and and what might have happened before and what might have happened after. It, for people who really just want to get this stuff figured out, it it is rather confusing. But, I, I mean, in the book, I, I talk a lot to Dan Farrens who wrote that film, and he does elaborate on what he would have done, you know, where he saw it going from there, and that some of the differences in what ended up on screen versus what was actually in his script. And so there is a lot more to be to be said in relation to that, all of the changes that went down in that one. But the well, family thing is, it's like it's the heartbeat of the series.
1: It is, and that's the thing is, uh, you know, I, I think uh, it, it gives good motivation for the rest of the films uh, without that family thing. Because otherwise, right. then it's just Michael going, you know, obvious. obviously the original was intended to be the babysitter murders. Right. And then what would the second one be? Uh, the, uh, the the frat house murders and then the sorority murders. And then so by doing something like that, you actually have a through line for Michael, you know, a motivation to move. But, you know, it does detract a little bit from what I believe in. I know uh, John Carpenter has said in interviews is uh, that the motivation for Michael was that uh, he's the kid next door that just flipped out one day and decided to, you know, become a serial killer, that it could be the person, it could be anybody living anywhere.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And so, yeah, by adding that whole family tree thing going on, you know, it kind of detracts from that a little bit. But I can certainly understand why throwing that in there actually may have helped the series, especially when you get to four or five, you know, and I, like most people, I'm, you know, kind of throwing three to the wind because I'm sticking with the Michael story. Uh, with that
0: but just for the sake of discussion we again are forced to acknowledge everything and that we are acknowledging the series as a whole right and so it did a favor for what became the rest of the series but wouldn't it have I mean how, how would it have been if it was just one and two and the sister connection never happened but he did follow her just because the job wasn't done and then it was bookended then it was done you know, because when John wrote the first one, there wasn't going to be a second. And when he wrote the second one, there definitely was not going to be anything after that. So that was supposed to be an absolute. At the end of that, Loomis was dead, Michael was dead. Right. And so the only way that these things became favors to the series was with the advent of sequel, 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 sequel that came down the road. And when the series changed hands and fell squarely into most of his hands and he's like, Let's let's bring him back and so you know that's when it really started to help the story out i don't think that the sister thing really did anything for for part 2 in other words
1: no and i think that would have been a great one to add in part 4 uh you know part 2 i think part 2 but part 2 came out in uh 81 wasn't it was it 80 yeah. or 81? 81 81 yeah 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 and so you know that was also wasn't that the same year that uh you know they uh they came out with uh um the Empire Strikes Back, and you know you have the uh, the family relationship between. So there was actually you know. So if you think about that, then adding the sister, uh, you know, the family aspect kind of makes sense because it was already done in Star Wars.
0: Yeah, but John, John has said repeatedly that there was no influence on him for that decision other than just almost desperation. The way he talks about it, and so. And-
1: and you know what? I will take anything the big JC
0: says. Yeah, you don't have much square a source. I mean, it's like that. That is the the heart of it all.
1: <laughs> I, I you have no idea how envious I am just
0: for the fact that you got to talk to him.
1: <laughs> he is. Yeah, he, he has been a, a hero of mine for years.
0: I've interviewed him for so many things over time, and um, I even for the for the nonprofit that Malik and I have. I even directed John in a PSA that we recorded and stuff. So it's been a really interesting evolution to our relationship over the last few years here in particular. And I've ended up interviewing him about pretty much every film that he's done. In fact, next month for Fangoria, we have a tribute issue to him that's going to be coming out. And in it, I have the centerpiece interview where we do touch on every single film that he wrote, directed, or I mean everything. And, uh, I, I've, I've, I'm a huge fan as well. And still, I'm just giddy when we have the opportunity to, or the, or when rather, when I have the excuse to talk to him about something that hasn't been explored before, you know.
2: Yeah, I gotta say, you know, I obviously still a fan as well, but I want to throw this in, uh, when Jason and, and I actually met, and I'm actually kind of uh, still hold a little grudge against Mr. Carpenter. We were actually taking a John Carpenter film class at Central Michigan University, hmm. and uh, as a I don't know, not necessarily a gag, but our professor passed around a birthday card, um, and we all signed it. And uh, I even believe he, you know, said they uh, put a little message in the card. You know, we would love to hear from you. Uh, have you come to the class or something? And we got no response.
1: <laughs> we knew we weren't going. to. I knew I, knew. I know.
2: I just, I just, I'm still like, come Man, on. That. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's tough, and you know, poor guy. We it, did every... the same thing
1: to Kevin Smith.
0: <laughs> did, did 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 he respond?
1: He actually, uh, he sent an email back to the professor. That was so. That was a little bit. Oh, that's
0: cool. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, John is just inundated. I mean,
2: oh, I'm uh, sure. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah.
0: But yeah, that's hilarious that you did that. That's like when we, I remember being in class as a kid and we all wrote to an astronaut. It's like I don't, I don't expect to hear back from an astronaut, no. <laughs> and I didn't.
1: No. So, well, uh, we should probably wrap this up. Any last things uh, about the book? Uh, I want to tell people to you know go to your Facebook page at facebook.com/slash Halloween book. And uh, your Twitter is uh, also at Halloween book. Any uh, other information that you can get them, how they can get a hold of you or ask you questions or anything?
0: Yeah. Like I mentioned, you can certainly go to facebook.com slash Justin Beam. That's B-E-A-H-M. You can go to justinbeam.com, and that has links to all the different projects and things I'm affiliated with as well as an email contact on there that you can reach me through. But Facebook is a good one. Twitter is another good one. It's um, slash Justin Beam. So there's a number of different ways to get in touch. And I'm always happy to answer any questions, talk about whatever. And right now is a really exciting time with a lot of stuff happening. So if you want to keep up on things, oftentimes even you know it it, it might show up on my various streams before it does before I put it on like the official Halloween pages for example and those also should be referenced you can go to halloweenmovies.com that's the official site for the series and facebook.com slash halloweenmovies and that's where we have uh, all the latest and greatest on what's on what's new in the world of Haddonfield
1: Awesome. I want to thank you for uh, joining us. Go ahead and stick around after uh, we end the podcast, and uh, we can just talk one-on-one. You can give us all your dirty little secrets there. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Thanks again, guys. really appreciate it very much.
1: All right. right. So with that, here's the music. All right. That was our... uh, in-depth interview with the complete authorized history of halloween writer justin beam i want to uh, thank him for joining us and i want to thank you guys for listening to get a hold of us give us a call at 503-454-6941 send us email at feedback at creepercast.com you can also become a uh, fan and a friend on facebook at Facebook.com slash CreeperCast, and on Twitter, Twitter.com slash CreeperCast. Uh, Mike, what do you got coming up for next week's book review?
2: Well, as you know, I will be on my first vacation since 2008. I will be in Michigan attending a wedding, but I am preparing a book review of... uh, It's a collection of short stories uh, edited by Charlene Harris and Tony L.P. Kellner and it's called An Apple for the Creature.
1: Excellent. All right. See you guys next week. See you, Mike.
2: See ya. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of
0: the Foggy Jack Live Podcast. Please follow us on all our social media Jack 13. Also, make sure you subscribe to YouTube and to our Patreon. Hope to see you all next time down in the pumpkin patch. Thank you. Goodbye, and blessed be.